Welcome to the Penguin Magic Podcast. I'm your host, Eric Tate. We have an incredible show for you this week. The main event is something of a living legend. He's fooled Penn and Teller, lectured around the world, and developed some of the most mind-bending takes on classic magic effects the world has ever seen. Francis Minotti is my guest. We discuss his approach to creativity, his friendship with Teller, and a lot more. Nick Lacapo takes the week off, so I can tell you about the featured part of the week all by my lonesome. But before all of that, we kick things off with one of our quickfire segments, where your favorite magicians tell us the literature they would love to be lost at sea with. This week, comedy magic legend and executive committee member of the IBM, Keith Fields, joins me for Desert Island Magic Books. Keith Fields, thanks so much for joining me here on the Penguin Magic Podcast for Desert Island Magic Books. Let's suppose you wash up on a desert island with one magic book, but it's made of Tyvek, so it's not going to fall apart in the wind and the rain and the sand. What is your Desert Island Magic Book? Uh, Well, I've got two answers, the serious one and the funny one. Okay. Nice. I'll give you... (laughs) <laughs> nice way around my one book rule, but uh... I, know, I know I'll give you the funny one first because I think if I've got a Tyvek book, there's only one book I want to have just for the irony of the situation, and that's Gene Anderson's book. <laughs> <laughs> I do love the idea of an unterrible book about terrible paper, uh, terrible tricks. Is that uh, wonderful? Yes, I know. I, yeah. could, I couldn't resist that. Also, so that's the that's the that's the non-serious answer. I do have to really quick there say uh, that was a joke that I just did that really only works on paper because Gene Anderson's tricks are not terrible; they are just terrible. But it's a homophone. Oh, I missed that myself. Uh, <laughs> all right, give me the serious answer, Keith. Uh, the serious answer, I, I think I would probably have to grab Martin Gardner's Impromptu. Oh, because uh, the... there is so much in there and it will be kind of fun being on a desert island trying to find things that i could do that stuff with you know um, i will say and i don't know if this will change your answer or not because martin gardner's uh, impro- uh impromptu magic is an incredible book but in the canon of this uh desert island we have determined that there is a fully stocked magic shop there is a, a resort with lay people to perform for it's just that there are no books on the island is what we have determined uh, uh but the impromptu Martin Gardner's impromptu magic has some tremendous routines in it. And being able to learn impromptu magic is just one of those things that like has, it's always saved me when I'm uh, at my walk around gigs, because sometimes I just like, I find myself having to be able to do some sort of miracle off the cuff. And Martin or Gardner's books got some great ones in it. Absolutely. And it's the sort of stuff that you can take and develop as well. It's, uh, you know, a lot of it is kind of an idea. And sometimes those simple ideas can be developed into a crazy routine if you if you have that sort of a brain. I do love a book. It's it's definitely comes from that era, like the Encyclopedia of Card Tricks, where it's just like, all right, here's what it looks like. Here's the method. And there's and the entire trick and explanation can be in one paragraph. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, there's one um, one thing I should say. I, I'd, I'd have to struggle between which version because there's the Miracle oh. Factory version as well, isn't there? Yes, there uh, is. And, and that's got some nice additions in it and um, extra notes and things. Is there, so I might lean that way. Is there a particular trick out of uh, this book that you find yourself still doing? No, no, there isn't. None that I can think of off the top of my head, but it's one of those books that I dip into frequently. Yes. Uh, and just, it, you know, you pick it up, open it to any page, and you will find something incredible. It's, uh, so it, it's, it's kind of that kind of a book, you know. It's, uh, it's, a, it's a book I look to for inspiration. 
It's a great book uh, to take to a desert island and just a fantastic magic book that everyone listening to this should definitely check out. Well, Keith Fields, Martin Gardner's Impromptu Magic is a great one. Thanks so much for joining us here on the Penguin Magic Podcast. Always a pleasure. Thanks so much to Keith for joining me on the show. Last season, Keith and his partner, Lady Sarah, had a fascinating interview about putting together a double act. Go check it out. On to the main event. Francis Minotti might be an actual wizard. His routines are not just memorable, but you never quite know where they're going to take a left turn that causes you to experience true astonishment. He's performed all over the world and is a widely respected creative force in magic who often turns his tricks into art. He was one of the first magicians to fool Penn and Teller, and I am fortunate to call him a good friend. I grabbed some of his time over Zoom for a sprawling chat about a wide variety of topics, and now you get to join our conversation. Francis Minotti, thanks so much for joining me here on the Penguin Magic Podcast. I'm very excited that uh, I was able to grab your time because you've been on the road and you've been doing stuff and you're a busy man making art and magic and fun stuff. And uh, thanks for coming on the show, buddy. Absolutely. I've been doing all those things and uh, and on one leg, which is kind of crazy. I know. So before we get into talking magic and theory and all kinds of other stuff, I think that our audience should know um, you broke a femur. Yeah, don't do that. Someone yeah. was like, break a leg, and I took them seriously. That was the stupidest thing I've done my whole career. So you're fine. Like, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. You're, you're, you're <laughs> hobbling around. You're, you're doing stuff. You're not actually only on one leg. You still have the second leg. Yeah, no, it's still, yeah. No, to, to, to be clear, it was, a, it was a, an accident. Uh, my my uh, partner, Lindsay and Noel, and I were building a tiny house up on her parents' property, and uh, the ladder slipped while I was building, and the and yeah, only fell six feet. But yeah, breaking a leg is breaking a femur is a is rough. You know, don't do that. Uh, but basically, what it did is it it forced me to be creative over the last few months even more and in different parameters that I usually have to do with. So I, that's actually a, a good springboard for what I want to talk to you about is because I've I've always really enjoyed watching you perform because you tend to approach magic in. I mean, really an artistic way is the only way I can put it where, because I'm just thinking of, you have this really wonderful egg bag routine that if people haven't seen it, involves an egg changing places with a cell phone and having a conversation with your mom, which is just, when people do the egg bag, you don't think of these things. And so I imagine that having to also deal with a broken leg and would change the way you're doing your show would almost be an advantage to you because it probably pushed you in different ways that you're not normally thinking of. I, I don't know if I've ever thought of or used the word advantage to this particular, in this particular case, but yeah, I mean, that's the, the, the proverbial life hands you lemons make lemonade. I mean, that's, that's sugar, literally sugar coating any, any, everyone, everyone has issues. Everyone has problems they have to deal with in certain ways. Uh, and the question is how you address them. <clears throat> and all of magic is that they're just very small broken legs really because if you think about it, everything everything we do is impossible mm -hmm. so our job is to take whatever is seemingly impossible to an audience and then turn it into something to to, to come as close to doing that impossible thing as possible um with the with the understanding that we have parameters within which you have to work so uh you know i want to make this happen well that's impossible mm -hmm. how can i how close can i get to that uh so i mean for me the last few months have been, uh, it, it was more creativity in the sense of I couldn't work for the two months. So I had to sit and think, yeah. <laughs> um, <clears throat> which is, uh, <clears throat> pardon me, mm -hmm. which is something I, you know, I enjoy doing, but when they're, when you're forced into a situation, it puts different perspective on things. So. Um, how have you let your love of art 
influence your magic? Because if anyone is friends with you or follows you on like Facebook or Instagram, you're not just putting out like tricks. I mean, there, you you do these amazing stop motion things. Um, Thanks. And I mean, it's it's always the art you're producing is always interesting. And I have to wonder. Is the magic influence in the art? Is the art influence in the magic? Or is it just, how do you find time to focus on anything because you're doing so many kinds of art? Uh, does one influence the other and vice versa? Yes. Mm-hmm. I mean, everything, <clears throat> everything's connected. This is for everyone, right? Uh, they, this isn't my question for people. Uh, lots of different magicians who do creative thinking and creative, uh, uh, encouraging creative exercises ask the audience, and I ask the audience now, what do you do other than magic, because mm-hmm. we're we're all here right now. Everyone's listening to this podcast is into magic mm-hmm. on some level, whether they're a performer, or a creator, whether they're a professional, an amateur. All of those things. We're all in the same uh, Eugene Berger house of magic, right? Yeah, as many doors, uh, and everyone's welcome. But at the same time, they're you know we're all in the same family. That said, um, what else do you do? Because we are the only people, I, I used to say this about magic conventions, magicians are the only people can that can sit at a convention and eat, sleep, drink, breathe magic 24 hours a day, quite literally, for several days in a row, and not get remotely tired of it. That's, uh, that's a mental illness. <laughs> <laughs> um, <clears throat> to, I mean, okay, yeah, obviously a joke, but still, yeah. it is a, we take it seriously to the point where... Um, we think that sometimes I think we're a little deluded in what we think is great or impressive or yeah. amazing or entertaining or whatever our goal is to a non-magician. Mm-hmm. Now, caveat, if you don't want to entertain non-magicians, if you're just a magician's magician or if you're just doing it for yourself, that's totally cool. That's yeah. totally fine. I don't, I, I love some, very, I love seeing people like going to 4Fs convention. You see people who are all ranges. Some of them are just people who are really good at mathematical principles or really good at certain technical slights, but mm-hmm. boring as hell to watch. Yeah. As far as on the surface goes, right? Yeah. But that's not that's not important. That's that is what they want to do and that's totally fine. Um I'm attacking it or or approaching it from the perspective of you know, well, as we all do, from my own perspective, mm-hmm. I'm doing this full time professionally. What is it that will make the magic that I'm doing the most accessible to the largest number of people that I want to be entertaining or, or impressing. And that last part is important also because I'm not trying to fool or enter. I'm not trying to entertain everyone. I'm not trying to yeah. perform for or work for everyone. Um, I used to do kids' birthday parties when I first started out. That's great. It was really lucrative and fun. Mm-hmm. I grew out of it a long time ago and I really don't like it now. Uh, I like it for other people. That's yeah. great. But I have no interest in doing it. Could I still jump up and do a kid's show? Absolutely, because you don't lose the riding a bike kind of uh, uh, sensibility. I mean, you, you might be a little rusty, but mm-hmm. um, uh, that said, so creativity on magic, I like to uh, I like to take pieces of magic, sometimes classic tricks, sometimes ideas, sometimes things that other, that I that other people have taught me or I've seen. I like to take the things that I don't like. Mm-hmm. I can't like I'll I'll uh I'll make something up so that I'm not talking about a, a, a real life piece, a, a piece. But let's just say yeah. I say I can't stand the linking rings. Yeah. Everyone can identify what the linking rings are, mm-hmm. right? And everyone has that trick that they can't stand. Mm-hmm. It's not the trick's fault. Yeah, the trick might be good. Uh, it might be deceptive. Lots of people might like it, but for some reason I can't stand it. Mm-hmm. So my job 
in my mind as a creator is to take that and make it something that I would like watching. So that's why going back to the egg bag, yeah. I didn't like the egg bag. I still don't like most most egg bags. Yeah. Some dear friends who do amazing pieces, you know, whether they're based on the Ken Brooks or uh, uh, Johnny Thompson's egg bag and things like, you know, really great classics, undeniable, wonderful presentations. Mm-hmm. I They leave me cold. Yeah. So I say, what would make me enjoy it? And if I can get it to make something, if I make something that I would enjoy when I'm performing it, mm-hmm. that excitement, that being enthralled with what I'm doing and the, the, the creative twist that I've put on it that identifies it as mine is contagious to the audience. That will, if I'm enjoying it, the audience will enjoy it. Yeah. Uh, almost universally. Like if you're having fun, the audience is going to have fun. I love this idea of, of attacking effects that you don't like. I think, I mean, that to me is like, I think most people would be like, oh, okay, you know, I'll just, a personal example, I typically don't like the ambitious card because I think that most of the time when I see it, it's really just somebody showing off how many controls that they've learned uh, year after year. And the idea of going after this particular thing because I typically don't like it is, I don't think most people would think to go after a trick like that because they would just be like oh like whatever because now even in my own head I'm going like I hate rope magic because I think most rope magic looks like a puzzle and now it's making me go well maybe I should buy some rope and see and learn some routines and see what it would would make you should you should buy uh, the rope and then find track down the tabare tabari whatever mm-hmm. uh, I, don't, I don't remember how to pronounce his name but uh the rope routine because that actually is what influenced how I do my rope stuff yeah um and Similarly, I do a staple of my show is a rope routine that starts with Professor's Nightmare and goes into some Tabare stuff and then uh, ends with a piece that uh, a move of the Chudogawa taught years ago mm. that's still associated with Tabare. But anyway, the point is, I used to do this for kids' shows and then like commercial shows mm-hmm. and not, not that often. And then more and more people, Lindsay, but as well, but other magicians would say, you should throw the rope routine in. Mm-hmm. And I was like, uh, I don't, I don't know. It's just a, it's just a magic trick. It's just, it doesn't feel like my, it's now in every show that I ever do. Yeah. And it's not, yeah. I don't, I don't dislike it, but I, there's a part, part of me that doesn't get it. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't like I'm doing this and I'm like, I guess you guys are really into this, so I'll keep doing it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that, that eventually became something now I really love doing it. Um, same with the ambitious card routine. I feel I feel the same way about it. Mm-hmm. It's mostly for me a matter of repetition. Yeah. Uh, so what I did with mine was I took it and I turned it into. I have a three phase ambitious card routine. It rises to the top three times and then turns into a rising card. Ah. Okay. Uh, like an actual, you know, like a uh, yeah, Kundalini, like, like Henry out of Evans, the box, yeah. right? So yeah, yeah, rise out of the box. Um, and the reason I did that was because I couldn't get a reaction from my rising card for some reason mm-hmm. which is the strangest thing i would watch yeah. a good friend randy shine i'd watch him do the rising card and people would would flip tables yeah they would run <laughs> <laughs> they, would, they would run screaming from the room um and uh you know i'm sure you can identify with that yes but uh the they would do the and then and then i would do Later, say a different group of people, same thing. Mm-hmm. I would do it, and people will be like, "Oh, that's nice. That's yeah. cool. I don't know how that happened." I'm like, "What's going on here?" And it was obviously presentation. It was obviously mm-hmm. me, because uh, that's the thing. When we look at a trick, we can't. You look at something, you can't say it's the trick's fault. You can't say it's the audience's fault. Mm-hmm. Also, fault. Side note: fault is the most useless thing. Blame is the most useless action anyone can do mentally or or yeah. physically. Yeah. 
I don't care as a problem that as our job is problem solving, looking for whose fault something is, is always the worst place to start. Mm-hmm. So I don't care who did what or why it's not working or whatever. I care about what the solution is. Let me focus on that. And if I just cut that crap, I, if you, okay, great. You want to revisit it later and, and make sure it doesn't happen again. That's fine. But I don't care whose fault something is or what, where the fault lies. I want to know what the solution is to make it better for myself and for others around me. Sorry to interrupt, but this week the show is brought to you by Dean Dill's Blizzard. Nick Lacapo takes the week off so I can tell you a little bit about this incredible effect. Blizzard is one of those effects that Dean Dill used to fool the pants off of magicians in his legendary barbershop. Basically, the effect is you have your audience name any card. Seriously, they can name any card. It's not a force. It's not a limited selection. You take that card out of the deck along with its mates and the audience mixes up the cards. Impossibly, you can successfully divine which of the cards your audience named. But then, in an astonishing kicker, the rest of the deck is revealed to be blank. The trick is not only amazing, but it's super easy to do. It comes with a redesigned switching device that is more durable than ever. And you get to learn variations on this effect by Tony Miller, Luke Germay, Oz Perlman, and Magic Belay, where no switches are needed at all. Blizzard also features an interview with Dean Dill that we got from the archives of Real Magic Magazine. Blizzard is more than just a trick. It's a celebration of a modern master of magic. And the incredible listeners to the show receive 25% off Blizzard when they, see, when they enter a special discount code at checkout. This week, that code is ICED. That's ICED, I-C-E-D, for 25% off Blizzard by Dean Dill. That code is only good for Blizzard and only good until the next episode of this show airs. Now, back to my conversation with Francis Minotti. You know, I'm sure you can identify with that. Yes. But uh, the, they would do, the and then, and then I would do later, say a different group of people, same thing, mm-hmm. I would do it, and people would be like, oh, that's nice, that's yeah. cool. I don't know how that happened. I'm like, what's going on here? And it was obviously presentation, it was obviously mm-hmm. me, because uh, that's the thing. When we look at a trick, we can't you look at something. You can't say it's the trick's fault. You can't say it's the audience's fault. Mm-hmm. Also, fault, side note, fault is the most useless thing. Blame is the most useless action anyone can do mentally or, or yeah. physically. Yeah. I don't care. As a problem, as our job is problem solving, looking for whose fault something is is always the worst place to start. Mm-hmm. Don't, I don't care who did what or why it's not working or whatever. I care about what the solution is. Let me focus on that. And if I just cut that crap, I, if okay, great. If you want to revisit it later and, and make sure it doesn't happen again, that's fine. But I don't care whose fault something is or what, where the fault lies. I want to know what the solution is to make it better for myself and for others around me. You mentioned earlier about your goal being to make your magic as accessible and entertaining and correct me if I'm wrong because I don't want to put words in your mouth but accessible to the widest amount of audience as possible am I am I sort of paraphrasing correctly ish uh, yes okay. but there is a the, yes and uh, the widest audience that I want that you want um, right that's important because I don't want to be McDonald's I don't want to serve everyone yes right and so uh, and then and then you're also uh, attacking, you're, you're choosing pieces and choosing uh, projects to work on based on effects you don't like. And I'm, I'm wondering what the process is to take, because I imagine that a lot of times the reason you don't like something is very, is influenced by your sort of magician brain. Mm-hmm. Right. So when we sort of going back to the ambitious card or the linking rings, uh, you you don't like this because it is repetitive or because of, you know, some something like that, that as a magician 
and who has much experience with this, which is a different kind of experience with the effect than uh, a lay audience would have with it. Um, mm -hmm. How do you take this thing that is, you're, you're approaching it because of your magician brain and turning it into something that you like that satisfies your magician brain, but also becomes accessible for the audience that you want, keeping in mind that you work for real people. Like you're not, you're not just, you're not only performing at conventions, which again, there's no problem with, but that's, right. it's, it seems like a weird dichotomy to me, but also a fascinating creative exercise. Okay. I think the first thing to, to address with that is that I'm, my, my job is a professional magician for quote unquote real people, mm -hmm. right? Again, it's, and I've done conventions, I've done the lecture stuff. I, I enjoy it. I dip myself in and out of the magic community. Mm -hmm. Um, and I enjoy the, the magic community is great, but it's not my source of income by any means. Mm -hmm. Um, so from, I have to look at things from a business perspective first, like how do I, how do I pay the bills while I go to this, these group, this group of people and I make them happy, mm -hmm. <laughs> right? So I do have to uh, uh, address that I know who my audience is first. And the next thing I need to realize is that the audience, and this goes, this goes for all lay audience, does not care mm -hmm. what magic tricks you do. Yeah, They don't care. At, they don't care. Yeah. They, unless it's a very specific niche audience, uh, they care about making a connection with you. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I need to make there I'm selling me um, on stage in, and I'm, and this is, this goes for when I'm performing for magicians as well. I really ultimately am selling me. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, so the personality is it basically all the, any piece of magic that you do is a, is an allegory for a part of my personality. It is a, it's a seasoning on the person that I'm selling, mm -hmm. right? So it's the, here I am, we're having fun, we're having a conversation, I'm making a point, and here, let me use a magic trick to illustrate that point. Yeah. And that point might be a philosophical, heavy, heartfelt, emotional point, mm -hmm. or it might be a joke, yeah. right? But it's still, the magic trick is the, our job as magicians, our first step is to fool a person. And I hate the word mm -hmm. fooling, but that's a different story. You know, we, we're stuck with it. So um, to deceive a person through an artistic endeavor to make them real, to make them think that the world works differently than, differently than they do, right? Mm -hmm. That's your job number one. Great. You're a magician. Now make it interesting because mm -hmm. that's not inherently interesting to, to most people. Yeah. It's interesting to us. But it's not interesting to most people. They're just because something doesn't, just because you don't know how something works or just because something is visually appealing doesn't mean it's inherently interesting or at least yeah. for longer than five seconds, right? Yeah, I, I've, I've had some interesting conversations with some of my, I, so as Francis and I record this, I'm in California um, uh, playing the Magic Castle and it's always fun for me to come back because I have so many friends in LA and I've had conversations like this multiple times this week getting lunch with people. And uh, I, I really like that you don't like the word fooling and that you actually, you purposely changed the language there to deceiving people with an art form. Why don't yeah. you like the word fooling? Uh, it's, I mean, okay, first off, I'm a linguist. I always been, I've, I, if anyone doesn't know anything of mine, my, my favorite stuff is usually worked around, my presentations are usually something to do with words or complicated language or misunderstanding, you know, mis misinterpreting, creating puns in an entertaining way that's not to like say, ha ha, look how clever I am. Mm -hmm. But uh, so 
one can argue, oh, it's just semantics, but all that having been said, there's the caveat. Um, fooling means to make a fool of, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, essentially, if you break it down, to fool someone is to make that person foolish, to, to, which is not, a, not an admirable position. No one wants to be fooled. Mm -hmm. We as magicians walk into every show uh, in an adversarial, we're starting our every relationship adversarially. Because mm -hmm. even if someone loves magic, we walk into a room with a deck of cards or coins or some other, whatever object we're going to do a magic trick with. Mm -hmm. And the audience's first imp impression is, okay, this magician is going to do something to try and fool me. Yeah. I am going to try and figure them out. So that means it's, it's, it's a boxing ring immediately. Mm -hmm. Like we're going to, so that's a terrible way of starting a relationship. <laughs> I, yeah. uh, you know, my goal was I'm, when I'm performing, uh, if, is to break that adversarial relationship down immediately by twisting their perspective of what's about to happen. I take out a deck mm -hmm. of cards. A lot of people will first say, Oh, I know what the, I know this trick, mm -hmm. not realizing that there are more card tricks in print than any other piece of magic. Yeah. <clears throat> um, so while well, I will take the deck out and I'll start shuffling the cards and my words get shuffled up. Mm -hmm. Well, now the audience goes, uh, wait, that's not what I was expecting. Mm -hmm. And I basically, I took, took it and turned the, turned the, the room upside down on them, their understanding of uh, what magic is. By the time I'm through this piece, it's no longer an adversarial thing. Now it's a, hey, I'm your tour guide on a little journey of impossible and absurdity. Um, this is crazy and fun to me as well. I'm not trying to trick you, but I'm trying to share these fun, interesting, fascinating, crazy, weird things that I love with you. Just as a good tour guide of a city might do with their with their place. They're like, hey, look at this stuff. This is so cool. Uh, there's no there's no me versus them, right? Now, I, if you want to be a person who does the me versus them, that's fine. That's but I'm just saying this is how I how I approach the magic. I think what is I think, I think arguably one of the, the most important acknowledgements right there and something that I think even the, the most well-meaning magicians often ignore is the immediate acknowledgement that magic is inherently an adversarial uh, relationship because as much as we want to, uh, at first, right, it's, it, it's, always, it's almost always walked into as an adversarial relationship with a, an audience, specifically because I, I know that I'm not crazy and my audience isn't six. In general, we all know that what this is going on is not real magic. And so to have to, and they, you have to get the audience into the willing suspension of disbelief that it's okay for me to lie to you. And even if you want to have a very positive relationship with the audience from the very beginning, you have to acknowledge that for 200 years, it has been set up as an adversarial relationship and you have to change that immediately. And yeah, you I have to acknowledge the elephant that's not yet in the room. You, yeah, I, I think that's that's it, right? Because you can you can make it not an adversarial relationship, but you have to acknowledge that it starts that way, whether you want it to or not. Yeah, and that's absolutely mm -hmm. they the and it's not anyone's fault other no. than it's the it's their pre disposition, their pre uh, understanding of what. This is like we all, okay, as humans, we label things. We have an idea of what everything is. We're almost always wrong, but mm -hmm. we, all, we have an idea of what everything is. And we need those labels so that, because otherwise, if you don't, 
if we don't assume as I mean, I use this in my script, but I, if I don't assume gravity exists, you won't, I won't be impressed when something floats. Yeah. Right. If I, I have to have certain assumptions. So those assumptions are necessary, but my job is to ma like manipulate the assumptions, not manipulate the person, but manipulate their assumptions on how the world uh, works. I think that, I think the reason many magicians shy away from this acknowledgement is that the idea of being an adversarial relationship is the idea that it starts as a negative relationship. And adversarial doesn't necessarily mean a negative relationship. It's just a status, right? Mm -hmm. And um, and so I think that like uh, sort of acknowledging that and trying to flip it is, I think what some of the my favorite performers just, they they see that, that sort of it's solving the Gordian knot of how do I get this audience to like me? It's acknowledged that it's that we're walking into this relationship as me versus you. Mm -hmm. And how do we transform that immediately? And it sounds like that's something that you do uh, with, you know, just as you just mentioned with the, the catching them off guard and changing it into this, making them care. Right. Yeah. Taking, yeah, you have to, you have to make them care. Yeah. I, uh, I know that you have some thoughts about, um, I just want to return to fault. Uh, I know you have some thoughts about magicians blaming audiences for things. And mm -hmm. I, and I'm, I'm curious as to, as to your thoughts on audi magicians blaming audiences. Cause I do see that frequently. Yeah. I think, uh, interesting. I think, well, first off blaming, it's, I have two thought, two two schools of thought on this. Um, the the common rhetoric is you should never blame your audience for having a bad show, and that's that is genuinely true. Mm -hmm. The flip side of that, the nuanced side of that, is it's possible to have a quote unquote bad audience. Mm -hmm. That doesn't mean it's their fault that the show's not going well, but it does mean like sometimes you know, and, and anyone who's performed long enough. If, the kind of joke is uh, if you if you haven't had a bad show you haven't done enough shows mm -hmm. um, right uh, every every top person you look at in your field has had atrocious things happen in their shows yeah and sometimes it was quote unquote their fault right mm -hmm. um, I, I like I like to make the analogy of looking going to a movie there are the nice thing about a film that illustrates this point is the film is there. There's no, there's no interaction. There's no changing it. It's, it's what it is. They can't, the film can't react to the audience's reactions. All right. So you watch a film with a, a, a full house of people and it's a, it is a decidedly funny film, right? Like it's, I mean, just Rotten Tomatoes gives it 98%. Uh, everyone, every, classically around the world, everyone thinks, or at least their country, everyone thinks that this is a funny movie. Mm-hmm. And when you watch it, no one's laughing in the audience. That doesn't mean it's not funny, and it doesn't. And it's not. It, it, what what it probably means is there's there wasn't the catalyst person in the audience that starts laughing because a lot of times there's a lot of times in an audience you have a catalyst mm -hmm. who one person starts laughing and the other people around them start laughing because it's okay to laugh. They're laughing at that person. They're laughing at the film. They're not laughing at the person as in, ha ha, look at this idiot who's laughing. They're, it's contagious. The laughter is contagious, right? If that person's not there and there aren't any catalysts in the audience, you can have a dead flat audience and it's not the, and, and, it's, and the film did nothing different. Mm -hmm. You can go to see that same film 
with a whole group of a whole audience and the, you can't hear half the script half the dialogue because it's just people cackling mm-hmm. throughout the whole film same film take this to a magic show where now you have the interaction of the ability to interaction and change the course of the show um we don't you know i'm sure you've experienced this where you'll have a show where you're like pulling teeth to get reactions or yeah. applause or and that's happened it happens at the castle even even in a place where people yeah. are literally going to see magic and you're just going through the show and you're like where the hell are you people yeah and at the end this is the killer at the end they come up to you and say that was the best thing i've ever seen in my life <laughs> i have no idea i was that was so funny that was so amazing that yeah. was so 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 you know hyperbole after hyperbole and you're just going in your head th- you know saying thank you and in your head going well why didn't you tell your face or your hands yeah. or any part of you? Um, so I think, yeah, blaming the audience is a, a waste of time, but understanding that you can learn from what the audience is doing and try to adapt as you go. And at the end of the day, mm-hmm. you might not get the reaction that you want. Now, I have a I have a tip slash solution that I like to I talk to with other friends, other pros mm-hmm. that I think you'll appreciate as well. Um I probably do, but uh, I I like to keep, I have my my barometer routines Mm -hmm. in my show. And the barometer routine is a, it's a barometer, temperature, or a thermometer, whatever you want to look at it. It's taking the, taking the feel of the audience and uh, like, I'll take a a piece, whether it's my shuffled words or the rope thing or the egg bag. Um, I'll take one of those routines. Rope is a good example. I can do it if I have the flu. I can do it if I'm hungover. If I, I could do it in any situation and it will come out well. Mm-hmm. Like the, the trick, I will do this. I've done it so many tens of thousands of times in yeah. so many different situations in different countries and all over. I know that this gets a certain kind of reaction. And so if it doesn't, if that piece and I do it and it doesn't get a reaction or it doesn't get the, the, the feel that I want... Mm-hmm. Then I know it's the audience, yeah. and I don't mean that it's like the audience. It's not the fault of the audience, but I just know this is a kind of audience that I have to do a certain thing. Yeah, a certain. I have to change my energy. I have to reach them. I have to find them differently. Mm-hmm. Um, and if I so if I get to the end of that thing and it hasn't hyped them up or it hasn't gotten the reactions, I'm like, okay, good. I now know what kind of show I'm in. Yeah. Um, and I think it's really important early in your show. It doesn't have to be the first thing you do, but it's really important to have a barometer routine early on so you can say, okay, I know how to, I have an idea of what the trajectory of this show is going to be. And now I know I may not be able to change it, but at least I'm prepared for it. Yeah. I, I'm because I'm in the back of my head. I'm thinking of, so that is fantastic advice for anyone. I love the idea of a barometer routine. Cause I, I, th- I think that many of the of my favorite performers whether or not they're doing that intentionally they're definitely doing it right and so that they know that they can dynamically change the show to make to to bring the audience out of their shell do whatever you need to to connect with them um but balancing that with you know when i was a comedian uh when i mean not that i'm not a comedian anymore but when i was doing more just like straight stand-up with no props or tricks uh if a joke wasn't going well, it was easy to dump it and go into a different bit because right. I'm just playing with words, right? Whereas magic, the issue has always been, it is very linear. Um, 
there's there's two shows going on. So there's the shows that they see, but then there's all the secret stuff that has to happen. And as my show evolved and became more sophisticated, what the audience is seeing is one thing, but also I have to do A to do B to do C to do D so that everything happens. And sometimes I'm doing secret actions for one trick in the middle of another. And right. so when you when you have that barometer moment and you know that you have to change stuff to reach that audience, how do you do that and still maintain the the show and all of the secret linear stuff that has to happen, whether it's overt lines or secret actions? Sure. Uh, well, one of the things I'll, I'll toss out these are just, these are things also. This is this is actually really easy because these are the things straight from my lecture. <laughs> That's going to do it for this week, kids. That's right. It's another two part episode. Tune in next week to hear the remainder of my conversation with Francis. We get real deep into the philosophy of magic. You won't want to miss it. Local show alert: January twelfth. I'll be back in San Diego at the Prestige Theater, followed by a short run at Mystique Dining in La Jolla. It's my first time back as a member of the Dragons Den. I got some new tricks for you guys. So be sure to come on out. Say hello. Maybe we can even session before or after the show. As always, we're a weekly podcast, so be sure to like and subscribe as well as share your favorite episodes on the social media platform that you've been showing off your Christmas presents on. If you wanted to reach out to me about anything on this week's show, you'll have to track down former BattleBots judge Jason Bardis and sneak your question onto one of his judging sheets. I just found out that a magician listener has been sending clips of this show when I do robot fighting callouts to a giant in the field of robot call fighting, and I feel like I've been smacked upside the head by Disco Inferno. But if doing targeted shoutouts to personalities from your favorite robot combat shows isn't your cup of tea, you can always hit me up on Instagram at Eric Tate. That's at E-R-I-K-T-A-I-T. From me and everyone else here at the P3 Magic Studios, practice, practice, perform.